I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to a bookmark from Just the Right Book. In case you missed our event at RJ Julia's, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with my friend, the author, Amy Bloom, about her book, White Houses. You can hear my entire conversation with Amy on Apple Podcasts or bookpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a love story inspired by one of the most intriguing relationships in history between Eleanor Roosevelt and first friend Lorena Hickok. So here's an excerpt of White Houses read by Amy Bloom herself. I would say that among the qualities of this book that I love are the passages that remind us of the tenderness and love that exists among women who might be viewed as ungainly or unattractive and are decidedly middle-aged. So I wonder if you would read us a passage that you think best depicts that. I mean, it's in lots of places in the book, but which one would you like to read for us? Yeah, Lorena, this is not her first rodeo. She has had girlfriends. And one of the things that's so striking to her is that in her life, in her world, as she says, you know, I have had you know, pretty women, you know, coming and propositioning me, you know, since I was 14 years old. It's only in this world of sort of male journalists that nobody can imagine the relationship Mm. between me and Eleanor, which is, I think, both a plus and a minus for both of them. On one hand, it's great that nobody sees the secret that's right in front of them, but it's also painful, I think, to have nobody see you. Yeah. Um, Eleanor's understanding of our relationship was that our remarkable kinship, our communing spirits, made it possible for us to engage in physical intimacy, the likes of which she'd never known. I'm sorry, Franklin, but you learned absolutely nothing at Harvard and not much from your girlfriend, Lucy Mercer, who I imagine was the you're-my-hero kind of sex partner. I'll just say that after the polio, Franklin's own people spread the word that the man was paralyzed from the waist down and could now be officially held blameless with the ladies, no matter how it looked. Mm. I think there's a certain lack of imagination among Roosevelt enemies and also, honestly, among the Roosevelts themselves. For Eleanor, lovemaking had everything to do with a commingling of souls. She felt this way about all happy couples, that joyful sex had come their way because of their love, and when the sex faded away, their love would burn even brighter because the source of fuel was now high, not low. I don't care why the light burns. I think that even if you are both old ladies riding side by side on the 2nd Avenue subway with one of you going home to three grandchildren and a doddering husband, you can lock eyes and remember when you weren't. You remember that very pleasurable and surprising thing that was done to you by the wrinkly old bag of bones next to you and you breathe in memory. The weight and the mortality and the sensible shoes are just costume falling away and your real selves rise up briefly dancing rosy and naked right in the middle of the subway car. Mm. You are one gifted writer, Cookie. Thank you. And later on this week, we'll hear from Julia Samuel, who spoke to me about her book, GriefWorks, Stories of Life, Death, and Surviving. I am optimistic you'll find this conversation as riveting as I did. And here's a sneak peek. So you organized the book by the type of loss, losing a parent, losing a child, confronting your own death. Is the way in which someone grieves different by the loss, or is it more defined by who they are? It's really both. The measure of the loss is the emotional investment, the love in the person that's died. Mm. 
So, of course, it will be defined that, you know, with a, with a parent dying, you're always a child, whether you're 75 or 65 when your parent dies. Um, and it, but it will depend on the quality of the relationship, the circumstances of the death, and your own history and your own capacity to manage difficulty. So one of the things I hope the stories show is that we don't choose how... We have a kind of default mode that comes into play the moment we hear bad news or difficult things happen. And often our default mode is what we learned very young. Mm. And that normally, or well, certainly with the clients that I saw, is wanting to avoid the pain. It's almost like wrestling the monster down. And that people would come and they'd say to me, you know, I'm not doing this right because I'm not winning. You know, I feel so bad. I feel like I'm going mad. And they, it wasn't that they weren't winning and they certainly weren't going mad, but this is what grief is like. So that's why I wrote the book, was because, because it is still such a taboo, because I think people think, if I think about it and talk about it, I'm, I'm going to make it happen. Mm. And if I, if I don't think about it and talk about it, I'll somehow, it's going to happen to other people. And, I, they, you know, the gods out there, they're not going to look at me. It, they'll miss me out. Um, and, but that means that people are very ignorant. Mm. And they don't know what it's normal to feel. They don't know. It's, and more importantly, people don't know how to respond to them when they're grieving. Yeah. And that's a huge, sort of incredibly significant part of it because what I've learned over the last 25 years is that when love dies, it is really only the love of others that helps us survive. Your connection and relationship with other people are the supports that enable you to find a way of managing that pain and finding a way of rebuilding your life and living again. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.